Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Morning, church. Um, our Bible reading is going to be taken from the book of First Kings, chapter 17, verse 17 to 24. Verses 17 to 24. Um, when I finish reading, I will say, This is the word of the Lord, and we will say, Thanks be to God. Verse 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Elijah replied, Give me your son. He took him from her, from her arms, called him to the upper, carried him to the upper room sorry, where he was staying and laid on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave to him to his mother, he gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, I was on mute. Sorry. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see us all here. Uh, nice to see, um, I think, a few new faces, I, if I'm not mistaken. And so if you are worshiping with us for the first time, we're so happy to have you. And we hope um, your time with us would be a blessing. My name is Femi, and I want to lead us uh, in, the word, in the word of the Lord. Now, um, for, I don't know if you're coming here for the first time, we've been doing a series uh, in the book of 1 Kings. We're looking at the person of Elijah. We want to learn from Elijah. The Bible says that he's a man of like passion. So we want to learn what it means to be truly human by looking at the life of Elijah. Now, I don't know if, uh, I think it was this just this past week, but... Um, it was a sensation that was going on. And maybe you are caught up with that sensation too. It had to do with um, the coronation of the Olu of Wari, right? right? All of a sudden, we all now knew his, that there was an Olu of Wari. And it's not like uh, we're monarchists and everything. But it was just the campaign was, they, they did well. The PR company, they did very well. Oh, I forgot to welcome those who are watching as well. Yeah, happy to have you. So back to the Olu of um, Warrior. So while, while that was happening, it reminded me about my fascination though. There's a fascination I want to share with you that I've always had. And it's that I wanted to be a prince. I wanted to be a prince. I didn't need to be a king. I just wanted to be a prince. And you say, why did you want to be a prince? For all the pomp and ceremony? No, it's nothing like that. It has to do with sleep. Sleep. And you're wondering, sleep, why? Well, it reminded me of a movie, it's coming to America. And I, you remember our own sleep. When, when last have you seen yourself sleep, when you wake up in the morning? Have you seen yourself in the morning? You see, the problem we have is that most of the time we are woken up with an alarm clock. And you're like, oh my God. And so you get up in the morning. You don't look good. That's the truth. Because you don't feel good. Or maybe like when I was a kid, it's time to go. My school was very far. And you come. So you get up. When I was coming to America, I was like, things can be different. If I was the prince of Zamunda, because when you are looking like this asleep, 
But then they don't slap you or they don't bring some kind of alarm clock. They play violin music for you. And you move from this to looking like this. <laughs> now, I recently had that look when I woke up. In fact, I had it recently, probably just this week. My wife is going to kill me for this story. She told me not to repeat it. Baby, I am really sorry. After this, you guys pray for my marriage, okay? <laughs> but the truth was that why did I have this smile? I had this smile because I woke up and I just saw my wife. I said, Chai! I married Opu. She was looking beautiful. She was looking stunning. I got up out of the bed. I stood some distance from her and I did what every reasonable man would do. I looked at her and I did this. <laughs> and then I opened my arms. I said, come into the joy of your Lord. <laughs> and then my wife did what every 21st century feminist red woman would do. She looked at me and she said, you come. And so I was like, no, I've come. She said, no, you come. And she said, utter these words. She said, I want to be pursued. I don't know if you've been in any long relationship or those of you that have been married for some time. Ladies, don't you still like to be pursued? Don't you still like to be pursued? Well, they didn't want to say that. However, <laughs> so I thought about it. And remember I said, I'm a reasonable man. I'm a reasonable man. So what did I do? I took one step forward. I asked her to come. She said, come back. I took the next step forward. I asked her to come. She said, come back. I got very close to her, and then I just moved like that. <laughs> a pursuit, okay. 11 years. All that. It, it is not as it was, what, in the beginning. Now, I need to state here, this is not married in Lagos. Yeah? So, young men, please do as I do. No, I do as I say, not as I do. I'm not giving married advice. So, anyway, it's not, it's not as it was in the beginning. Eleven years after. And many of us, that is how our relationship with God has gone. When you started and became a new Christian, it was all rosy. The sun was always shining. You were all over the moon. At that point, you were always worshipping. You were studying. You were praying. You were kabashing. You were evangelizing. There was zeal for healing. You demonstrated tremendous faith in so many things. So many things were making you so happy and joyful that you said, how come I did not become a Christian earlier? And then you looked at all those Christians who have been Christians for long. Then you looked at them and said, why have you lost your first love? How come you are not so joyful again? It's because you are not reading. You are not, you've, you've entered into many things. And so your music continues to play. And it's all going well until the music stops. Because now you have reached a different point. You experience disappointment upon disappointment. You experience crisis upon crisis. Unanswered prayers upon unanswered prayers. And then you start asking yourself the question, or you actually realize it's not like it was at the beginning. And so you start questioning, where is God in all of this? You ask around, but no answer seems to satisfy. Things do not get better, they only get worse. You start to doubt God. You start to doubt his character. You start drifting away. It's because God seems perplexing, and then you start asking yourself the question, do I really know God? Those older Christians that you once judged look at you as if to say, so you know God, Abby. Oh, but little did you know. Little did you know that God is allowing you to go through all of this so that he can reveal himself to you in a more profound and a deeper way. Listen, if you are here today watching, if you are here today and you are in this situation, God has not abandoned you. I'll say it again. God has not abandoned you. God is very much with you. But God wants you to know him properly. And if you need to know God properly, you need to know the God of the highs, but also the God of the lows. You need to know the God of the mountains, but also the God of valley. You need to know the God of the highlands, but also the God in the heartache. If you are to know him very well. And I pray, and I pray, and I pray that you will meet with that God today. And that as you meet with him, you will know him in a deeper way and that your lives will never be the same again. Amen. So if we're going to do that, can we ask for that God's presence right now? Lord, we've already prayed. Fill this place with your glory.
We ask, oh God, as we've already sung, we ask you to speak. Speak, oh God, to wandering hearts. Speak, oh God, to, to drifting hearts. Lord God Almighty, lift up the despair, oh God, in the house. Visit your people, oh God, with your presence. And, oh God, make it a situation that none of us will ever be the same again. We we'll ask all of this that now that let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our God and our Redeemer, to which we all say, Amen. And so we've aptly titled this sermon, So You Know God Abbey. And we're looking at it. It's all about knowledge. It's all about knowledge. For those who don't know what Abbey is, maybe you are, you, are, you, are, you are not a Nigerian. It's just so you know God truly. Uh, so you know God. Right? You know God, right? Uh, isn't it? Isn't it sweet, my friend? You don't know how to tie two sermons. All right. And we look under these three headings. Disrupted knowledge of God, deepened knowledge of God, and decisive knowledge of God. Disrupted knowledge of God, deepened knowledge of God, and decisive knowledge of God. So let's look at the text in the first point. Disrupted knowledge of God. Notice how we start. He says, some time later. Stop there. Sometime later. You see, sometime later indicates that there has been an earlier prior event. So we need to back up for those who are coming here for the first time. You see, in the beginning of, um, of 1 Kings 17, Elijah, a prophet of God, pronounces a judgment. He's a prophet of, uh, in Israel. He pronounces a judgment upon the land and also the surrounding lands. And so it's a judgment of drought, no more rain. And so you can imagine there's no more food. And so God then provides for him along the ravines and he was bringing ravens as well. But at one point, the ravines then dried up. So God now said, go to Zarephath outside of Israel and I have prepared a widow for you that will help you. Now this widow, when Elijah saw her, she was about to prepare her last meal for her and her, her son, her only son, and die. But Elijah then said, don't worry, something else is going to happen. And so in the drought, all of a sudden in the woman's house, because you know in a drought, not only are the farmers, you know, not in business, the supermarkets are no longer in business, right? Groceries cannot be shopped again. So in that time in Zarephath, ShopRite are closed. All their branches are closed. But this woman was able to keep shopping online at ShopRite. You know how? She was shopping at ShopRite's Heaven's branch. They kept delivering to her morning after morning after morning for three and a half years. They delivered to her free, and even the shipment was free as well. For those of you who buy cake for my wife, shipment is not free. Or this is not, uh, you understand, you pay for your shipment. But she was experiencing a miracle, a material miracle, day after day after day, and she was wondering, this Elijah's God, there's something about this God. We are pulling, everything is going well until sometime later. Tragedy struck. Her son died. And all of a sudden, the music stopped playing. You see, this tragedy was so epic because, first of all, understand, she was a widow. She no longer had a husband. And this was her only son. This was the only family she had. All her love had been invested in him. And the one she loved the most had now been taken away from her. But for a second reason, it was actually debilitating because this. Don't forget, as I said, she's a widow. And at that point, because the economy was down, ARM weren't there, no pension, no stamp beak, nothing. She had no pension plan. The only way she could have been taken care of in her old age was through who? her only son, and now he had been taken away from her. And so the woman was in a dire situation. But what was ironic about this situation is that she experienced this tragedy while her miracle of divine provision was still ongoing. Sometime later. And maybe you are here and you too also have a sometime later. You know what it is? It is experiencing God continuously and yet a tragedy is happening. And so you finally got that job you had been praying for and interviewing for. But sometime later, your dad died. 
or your kids got into that school that you have been hoping for, God provided provision for them to go to, but sometime later your spouse cheated on you. You see, you've seen God move and he's still moving, but then something happens sometime later. You're like, why this one? This one is too much for me. Couldn't God move also in this? And so the anguish that we feel at that point is because of a gap. It is a gap that exists between the hopes that we have in God and the reality of the situation that we are facing. Do you understand what I'm saying? We are God's children. We experience and we've seen that God is good, but we also experience this anguish. And this gap exists. So how do we normally react with this gap? Our hope is there, but the, the reality of what we face is there. Let me tell you, we respond to this gap in three ways. I'm helped by a guy called Paul Miller, whose book I recommend all the time. It's called The Praying Life. But we often res we respond in three ways. Denial, determination, and despair. Let's look at what happened with the woman. Notice he says, sometime later, the woman who, uh, who owned the house became, her uh, son became a woman, the son of the woman whose, uh, who owned the house became what? ill. He became ill. And so when she looked at him, he became ill. Well, probably it's a fever. You know, you all of us here, if it's a fever, if it's a headache, what do we do? Uh, what's there? It's not fever. It's not malaria. Whatever. We carry on as though nothing has happened. We carry on as though the thing isn't really there. It's not that bad. She probably didn't have health insurance. I'm sure. Like, oh, we're not going to now. Just go to the hospital and then the doctor will just say, go and drink water. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Are you stressed? Like, eh? I paid that money. They're not give you a bill of 30-something thousand just because of stress. But you didn't go anywhere. And that's how we live in an unreality, literally. We try to say this thing is not really happening. And so we put the trajectory of the unreality with our hope. We try to live our lives as though everything is going on well. So our relationship, somebody asks you, how is your relationship or your marriage going? You say it is fine, despite the warning signs. Or another person asks you, how is your health going? You say it is good, despite the fact that you discovered a lump. Or we begin confessing. And quite frankly, we start manipulating scriptures just to be able to help us and keep us in this place of denial. And yet the gap still exists. And so all of a sudden, our own reality moves into reality. It says that the woman's son became worse and worse. And we see, like Eminem said, that reality, you said, you know, you said, Eminem said, Back to reality, oh, there goes gravity. The gravity of the situation became so worse that we moved from one reality to reality. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Things became worse and worse. And so when she saw, I don't know how many of us are mothers here, at that point, almost it's not reality, it's not on reality again. What does she do? Let's do something about it. Let's call somebody. Uh, let me put cold water upon you. Let me bath you. Do all the things that she wants her to do just so that he can get better. And we too, maybe because of things we have done in the past that has helped us through uh, these obstacles, we now say, I, I had this obstacle before. I'll be able to fix it. So it was a bad interview. You say, you know what? I'll do better next time. I'll read harder. I'll take some other tests. Or maybe he is threatening to dump you. You say, you know what? I'll give him the sex next time he wants. I will fast and pray. And when the situation doesn't change, you know what you say? I will fast longer. I will pray harder. Or I will read a book. Or I will get some counsel. Or I will ask somebody to help me. There is always a situation until there isn't one. There's always a way out. Until we find that it's not working. And then, that takes us to the last place. Because what did it say? It says, and finally, the woman's son stopped breathing. After you've gone through trying, trying, and trying, and you see that nothing is moving, the disappointments multiply at some point. You find nowhere to go. At some point, because the situation is changing, you give up. And maybe you are here at that, you are at that point. You are the tether of not of giving up. See, there is no longer any gap in what we see. Why? 
Because we no longer have hope in life. And you wonder, what am I living for? So what happens? You start to withdraw. Because you are tired. When somebody asks you, how do you feel? You just say, I'm just tired. It may not just be physical tired. You say, I'm tired of life. I am tired of praying. I am tired of people praying for me. I am tired of, saying, of thinking about whether God cares. I am tired of doing this whole God thing. I'm just so tired. And you withdraw. You stop feeling. You stop dreaming. You stop praying. Because there is no more hope. I don't know if I'm speaking to somebody here today. So what happens when we stay in this despair is that despair gives birth to his bastard child. It's called cynicism. At some point, when the woman then went to Elijah, she said, what is it that you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Do you see what is happening at this point? The woman at this point is saying, do you know what? I was on my own, Jejeli. I was packing my sticks. We were already going to die. And then you came. You performed some magic, told me about one God. And so, yes, the oil and the flour kept on coming. But you did all of this just to raise my hopes up high and eventually take what was most important to me. Oh, I am in despair and I'm tired. And I ask you to be honest, some of us here, maybe before, maybe right now, you are angry with God. You are angry with God because of the situation that you are in. You are angry with God because of where you find yourself, because you are tired, you're tired of asking, and because you are angry with him, you do not trust him again, you don't trust him again, and so what do you do? You start to complain about him, just as this woman was doing. And I know maybe we are still too cultured to be able to say that, but I know that some people here, this is exactly the way you're feeling. And I've been praying as I was studying this sermon for you, and I was praying for this particular thing, that you don't give up. Because if Elijah was there, he, as Elijah was there in his heart, he wanted to tell the woman, don't give up. Because if only this woman knew what was coming. If only you know what was coming, that God was not done with her. And I cannot tell you right now that God is not done with you. Do not give up. You see, because God, the gap isn't meaningless. God is aware of it. And because he has a plan for you, he has a plan for the gap as well. Please do not give up. You see, the gap isn't there. It's not meant to lead us to any of those three things, to denial, determination, and despair. But the gap is actually meant to lead us into the desert. And it is in the desert that we, our relationship with God goes to another level. It is in the desert that God is able to turn our lives around. Please, if you are in despair at this point, do not give up. That takes me to my second point. Deep in knowledge. So, Elijah asks for the boy, and Elijah is going to respond. And the way Elijah responds, he responds in three ways that you also must take to heart. He responds in three ways. Let us never forget this. Elijah shows us what to do, he shows us why we do it, and he shows us what the results are. Elijah's response is going to show us what to do, why we do it, and what the results are. So let's start. When Elijah takes the boy, notice what Elijah says in verse 20. He cried out to the Lord, Yahweh my God, why have, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Now, notice Elijah's words, and you will say, well, that woman seemed angry, and Elijah's words seemed very angry as well. So what is the difference between two of them? I'll tell you what the difference is. While she complained to others about, well, uh, while she complained to others about God because of her situation, Elijah lamented before God because of her situation. Do you see the difference? She complained to others about God because of the situation, but the same situation moved Elijah to lament before God. Some people will say, God, Elijah was being disrespectful. How 
come? How can Elijah speak to God in that way? How can Elijah actually almost indicate and say, God, whilst all of these things were happening, where were you? And I'm telling you that God is okay with saying, where are you, God? And if you are questioning that, it's because maybe you've never read Jeremiah 2, verse 5 to 8. In Jeremiah 2, verse 5 to 8, Israel and Judah have gone into captivity. And God, the people that were around now, God was now putting an indictment upon them. And what was that indictment? Listen to what he says. This is what the Lord, Yahweh, says. What fault did you find in your ancestors? What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed far from me? They did not ask. What did he say? They did not ask what? Where is God? Who brought us out of Jesus? The same God that did all of these miracles and all of this. When all of a sudden disaster fell, here is their indictment. They did not ask, where is the Lord? He said, it's not just the people, it is also the leaders. Look at verse 8. He says, the priests did not ask what? Where is the Lord? Listen, lament is the only way that we react that is pleasing to God in the desert. One of my very good friends, one of my best friends actually, Francis, some of us know him, is a leader in church here. A few years ago, Francis and I entered into some kind of joint venture, right? Something we, we started together. And I was doing a little bit more of it, but I, um, at some point I started to get a little bit upset with him. Because I felt he wasn't putting in the effort that I expected him to put in. And, you know, there was small growing anger, small growing resentment. So I started complaining to my wife about it. And at some point, I just gave up. I said, you know what? I'm just going to do it myself. I'll just keep doing it myself. I'm not even going to bother telling him about it. And then a year plus after, Francis and I were having a meeting about that joint venture. And he was trying to, you know, talk about, okay, what do we need to do to move it forward and all of those things. And he was specifically talking about that aspect that I was a bit angry about. Well, not a bit, right? And so I was evasive a little bit, but he brought it back. I was evasive again, but he brought it back. So eventually, I just confessed. I said, well, I don't think I want to give you that responsibility because the last time that you did is look at how you actually reacted and blah, 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 blah. And Francis stopped. And then he responded to me in three ways. The first thing he said was he apologized. He said, I didn't know this was how this thing was going. I didn't know this was the impact of it. He apologized. The second thing he did was he explained why, certain, why this and this and this was happening. You know, he was explaining what happened in the situation. But then the third thing and the most important thing he said was this. But I'm disappointed in you. He said that this thing has been going on for so long and you kept this thing in your heart rather than come to lament before me. I thought we had a relationship and you should have expressed that relationship in lament before me, but yet you kept it to yourself. Do you understand what Francis is saying? He's saying that it was better for you to come and lament before me because of the relationship we have rather than you keep it to yourself or complain to others. And that is what a lament is in the disaster. You see, the reason why we face the anguish that we face before God, what a lament is, is that it is a cry that emerges from the tension between our faith in God's goodness and the reality of our current distress. It is a cry that emerges out of the tension that we face when we see our faith in God's goodness and the reality of our current distress. And so God says, lament before me, it is okay. Elijah's lament was literally him saying, God, I know that your purposes are good. I know ultimately you are a good God. But you know, with your purposes, it sure doesn't look nor feel good right now. Where are you? And you also in this situation. There is nothing wrong. God is saying that if you have a relationship with me, I have given you the permission. Ask me, where are you, O oh God? And then there is the reason why we do that. Elijah tells us what to do, the lament, but there is the reason why. You see, in the desert, I don't know how many of us have been in the desert before. How many of us? 
I'm not talking about those of you that went on a safari and all those desert safari going up and down. That one is not desert. You are inside AC, you are inside fine jeep. You, most of us have never been in the desert. If you go into the desert, you know what you find out? That all the things that work for you in the city, all those things that enabled you to live life in the city, all of a sudden it doesn't work there again. You are stripped bare of all the things that gave you life. Your social network, mobile network, you can't even call people. Access to water, you don't have microwave, you don't have all of these things, you don't have these friends, you don't have the things that give you life. And so it is also thinking about it in a spiritual desert. When we enter that desert, God strips us bare of all the things that give us life that we have used to replace God. God strips us of our idols. You see, if you look in that story, how did Elijah call out to God? In verse, seven, in verse 21 and verse 22. Elijah said, Yahweh, my God. Verse 22 again, he said, Yahweh, my God. Listen, the woman had been experiencing that God, but whereas that Yahweh was my God to Elijah, Yahweh was God to the woman. Big difference. She had experienced all of these miracles, but you will realize who her own my God was. My God for the woman, while God was, Yahweh was God for the woman, my God for the woman was her son. And so she lost what was my God, and because of that, she started to complain about God, because what ultimately meant the most precious thing to her was taken away from her. How we know this is because of this. While she was supposedly serving God, once something was taken away from her, her was taken away from her, you know what she did? She turned against God. I don't know whether you have started to see a certain thing. You have started to have another my God in your life. You see, it is in the desert that our idols are exposed and starved. Maybe you are at the point where you felt that God owes you. Or maybe you've begun to take his daily mercies and miracles for granted. Or maybe your job has made you too busy to connect with God. Or maybe you expect God to continue to show you love while you keep on sinning. At that point, we have entered into a place of idolatry and God uses the desert to strip us of all our idols. And that's why C.S. Lewis, I love this quote. He says that pain, pain insists on being attended to. While God speaks, while God whispers in our pleasures and he speaks in our conscience, what does he do with our pain? He shouts with our pain. Why? Because pain for us is God's megaphone to rouse up a deaf world. If you are deaf today, may God strip you of all the idols so that you can hear him better. Because in the desert, he makes us and exposes us. He removes all of those things so that there is a channel that is now open to God. In the desert, when you have lost all your dependency on all that is there, you can only cry out like Hagar did when there was no brook of water. God then shows up. May God open a channel to us and then may he show up for us in the name of Jesus Christ. Because when he strips us of all our idols, guess what? He prepares us to see him anew. What does God do? We see. What, what does Elijah do? Lamented. Why did he lament to remove? Why do we lament to remove the idols from us? And then the final thing is this. What was the result? Well, that reminds me of a story of a guy named Job in the Bible. Job. Job was a fascinating man. In fact, in the beginning of the book of Job, he says Job was um, a, an upright man. He was a blameless man and that he shunned evil. In fact, later it says in verse 2 and 3 that Job was a devout man, a devout worshiper. You know what he did? Not only did Job sacrifice offering uh, for himself, but you see, Job has children. And those children, like many people in city church, would have been, they would have gone, you know, 2 a.m. on Sunday, they were parrying and they were doing all of the things they wanted to do. So Job is like, hey, Paradventure, they have actually caused God. Let me offer sacrifice for my children as well. May God send you your own job. The people that need to catch it have caught it. He was a devout man, an upright man. 
And so Job was experiencing God. God was blessing him. Job was the pioneer of multiple streams of income. Everything was going well with Job. He had his wife. He had his children. He had servants. He had multiple businesses. He was the wealthiest man in, in his own region. Job was enjoying God. The music was playing until Job encountered it sometime later. He lost everything. And when I mean he lost everything, he lost his businesses, he lost his wealth, he lost his servants, he lost his children, he lost his marriage, and even he lost his health as well. Covered with boils all around. After his wife left him, he had some friends that came to meet him. They saw him, they went in, they just tore their clothes like, my God, see our, 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 our friend. And for Seven days, they did not utter a word. They just sat down with him. They should have kept quiet because the moment they started opening their mouths, they started trying to figure out what, what, why Job was going through what he was going. They were like, eh, I think you're a sinner. I think you've done this thing. Job said, no, I haven't. Look at my record. And so Job kept on responding and responding and responding until he gets to the crescendo of his response in chapter 31. If you've never read the book of Job, read chapter 31 because it summarizes how Job felt. Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. Hell! <laughs> Most of us here as Christians we say, God, Help me not to look lost. Hey, I don't know. God, forgive me for looking lustfully at you. You understand? Job said, if my eyes look lustfully at you, my God, remove it. And he said, this is the way to live. And so how do we understand what God does in this world? Is it not for him? What is our love from God above? Is it not for ruin, for the wicked disaster, for those who do wrong? But I have not been doing wrong. Does he not see my ways? Does he not count my steps? Later on in, verse, in chapter 31, Job said, look, when I saw a widow, I did not pass by. When people were in court that were, that, that were wrongfully accused, I fought for them. I provided for the poor. I did all of these things. And why is this thing happening to me? He was lamenting before God until verse 35 where he reached a crescendo and said, me God answer me. God answer me. And this is what he said. All oh, that I had someone to hear me. I signed my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. And God said that Job did not sin in all of this. When else did you ask God, answer me? Because whilst we go through our distress, rather than complain to other people, God is saying, I am big enough for you to answer me. I'm big enough for you to question me to answer you. Well, God responded. He responded to Job. And that's the first thing you must listen to. God actually did respond. God actually did respond. May God answer and respond to your questions to him in the name of Jesus. May you see that the God that we serve, even though it may seem like he is deaf, that is why even the psalmist will lament and say, give attention to my ear, uh, give your ear to my, to my words, O Lord. And it's not disrespectful. In your despair, may you not be driven to all these different directions. May you like Job, may you like Elijah, come before the Lord and say, answer me. Well, God answered. Now, when he answered, he said, ah, Job, <laughs> you asked me a question. But let me ask you a couple of questions. God asked Job 51 unanswerable questions because he didn't ask him, he didn't answer what Job was asking for. Job would not understand. God gave him question upon question upon question that distinguished God from him. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Oh, when the stars actually were singing and the angels were singing, where were you? Job, do you know how a snowflake is made? I must feel like God wanted to say, do you know how a wonderful abula is made? I don't know how. Sky Amala Abula in Ibadan. We're coming back. He kept on asking him, asking him, asking him. After 51 questions, Job said, it's enough. I understand. I cannot answer anymore. God said, I'm not done with you. Get up and brace yourself as a man. And he asked him another 18 questions. 
And in those questions, do you know what was happening? God was revealing himself more and more to Job. On the one hand, Job's reality was only fixed around his despair. All of a sudden, when God started opening himself up to him, Job said, there is a greater reality. And in chapter 42, verse 5, never forget these words. Because Job entered into another level. He has reached a profound place that God is trying to take some of us to. Job in, verse 40, in chapter 42, verse 5, he says this. I have, I'm quoting the King James because this is better. I have heard you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Oh, do you understand what happened? Job had known God before, but now all of a sudden he had a deeper knowledge of God. When you hear somebody for the first time and don't see the person, it reveals something about the person to you. Maybe the person's gender, maybe the person's age. But when you see the person, you know much more about the person. Do you understand what I'm saying? Audio reveals in one way, but visual reveals in a deeper way. Job said that I had known of God before, but now my eyes see you. May the Lord open your eyes in this despair. That God, you will be able to see that in your lament, that God is stripping away all the idols there so that you can hear the voice of God. So that as you keep crying out to God, there is a channel that is open. A channel that has never been opened before. You start to see the glory of God. You start to praise Him for who He is. So I'm challenging you. If you are moving and drifting into despair, now is not the time to keep silent. Now is not the time to complain about God. Now is the time to question God and see whether God will not answer you. Your eyes will see him anew, even though you have heard of him with the earring of the ear. That leads me to my final point. Because somebody will say something like this. My final point, decisive knowledge. You may say something like this. After hearing all of that, I can't deal with that. I can't deal with that kind of God. He said, because, so, all of God's plans for me, or all of God's, all God has for me in this difficulty is deeper knowledge. Yeah? Deeper knowledge of him. So you're telling me that in the agony and pain that I feel that the only way God responds is by giving me his presence in all of this suffering. Do you know how this agony is so difficult? You know what? He is not empathetic. I don't know why you call him good when he always withholds back his power to deliver. This God is not worth serving. And maybe you are here today and that is already the conclusion that you are making. If God is always responding to suffering simply to show me a deeper knowledge of him, as good as that is, or to bring his presence as good as that is, is this some kind of morbid religion? And let me not lie to you, I hear you. And I actually empathize with you. And I'll tell you the truth, there are some Christians who only present God in this way. For them, lament is only, the result of a lament is only to find God in deeper knowledge and his presence. But you know what? Elijah will have a problem with them. He will say, actually, no, you are right in this part. You are partly right, but you are not fully right. Elijah would decisively disagree with them. And can I ask you, can I ask you that you follow Elijah fully, but follow them partly? Because Elijah, after he lamented, and it was as though he was disrespectful to God, you know what Elijah did? He shifted from gear one to gear five. Elijah took his lamentation to another level. The first cry was questioning God, why is this thing happening? But in the second cry in verse 21, you know what he did? He asked God. He dared to ask God for another miracle. Some of you here, I dare you to ask God for another miracle. You've been asking him over and over again. Ask him one more time. Elijah, it says, cried out to God, my God, Yahweh, let this boy's life return to him. Do not mistake what a lamentation is. It is true that a lamentation responds to the gap between our reality and our hope. But whilst it responds to that gap, listen, it does not eliminate our hope. Rather, it reinvigorates our trust in God. And so, yes, I'm telling you, 
If your trust in God is not so that you can keep getting from God and keep getting from God. The reason why you have trust in God first is to have a relationship with Him. That's why you say, my God. But if you have a relationship with Him, if you have a relationship with Him, you can trust Him to always deliver, to sometimes deliver for you. Do you understand what I mean? You see, in the first part, we learned that if... Your denial, the denial of the things that you've asked God for does not mean that God is always dismissing you. If God is denying you, it doesn't always mean a dismissal. But even if that is true, let me tell you another thing that is true. Neither is your delay a denial as well. Don't stop believing. Don't stop believing. Don't stop asking God. It says in verse 22, notice, the Lord heard Elijah's cry. The Lord heard Elijah's cry. The Lord heard Elijah's cry. If only you will cry, the Lord will hear your cry. The Lord will hear your cry. The boy's life came back to him. The Lord will hear your cry. Keep knowing God deeper. Keep knowing God deeper, but don't stop asking for a miracle in your marriage. Keep knowing God deeper, but don't stop asking God for that healing, physically or mentally or emotionally. Keep asking God as He is revealing Himself to you, as He's taking your idols away. Yes, you can rely upon God, but don't stop asking Him for a miracle. For the boy's life came back to him. And somebody will say, maybe that's just the Old Testament. Well, let me take you to the New Testament. Let me bring in Paul. One of Paul's most profound letters is the second letter he wrote to Corinthians. And some people will know some of these verses. In fact, one of my children is named by this verse. You see, Paul says that he was getting an abundance of revelations, but God did not want him to get conceited. So God afflicted him in one way. And then he said he interceded long, three times, three times for God to take it away. You know what God said? My grace is sufficient for you. For your, you, might, you will know my power, what, in your weakness. So Paul says, I would rather boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then that person will say, do you see, it's a deeper revelation and a deeper knowledge of God. Well, but that was chapter 12 or 2 Corinthians. If you go back to chapter 1, Paul gives you a better summary of how God responds. In, in verse 9, Paul said, we went through something that it was as though we had received the sentence of death and that thing only helped us to rely on God more and not rely on ourselves. And you see, say it again, he's showing you a deeper knowledge of him He's actually stripping you of his idols. But Paul said that God was not finished with me. God is not finished with you. Turn to your neighbor and say, why do I say that? Because tell your neighbor, God is a delivering God. He is a God that still delivers. Paul tells us three times. He said he delivered us from such a great peril. Oh, you thought it was once. He said he would deliver us again. Oh, you think he's twice. He said, and I've set my hope on him that he will continue to deliver us. If our God is our God, keep on crying out. He will deliver you. Don't stop believing. He shows himself to you, but he will also deliver you. But there's one lingering question. On what basis can I know that I will have this deepening knowledge with God? On what guarantee can I know that God is a God I can have a relationship with and then He will deliver me? And listen, never forget this. Our disrupted knowledge of God is guaranteed to lead to a deeper knowledge of God only if we have a decisive knowledge of Him. A decisive knowledge of him. You see, the deeper knowledge of God already assumes that we already have a relationship with him. But please don't assume that. You see, let me explain to you. Paul said that we believe in God who raises the dead. And then you say that could be a reference to something like the miracle of the woman whose son was raised to death, of the widow whose son was raised to dead. But can I tell you that he was talking about something much more than that? 
something much more profound, something much more sweeter than that. We can already see a clue here. When Elijah in verse 23 gave the son that he had collected from her dead, he gave her that son and said, your son is alive. What did the woman say to Elijah? She says, now I know. Look, God. Mm. Oh, God. Oh, God, the Spirit of God I feel in this place. She says, now I know. She had been experiencing the miracle of God. She had known about the prophet of God for a particular time as it was the ongoing miracle. She knew God in a particular way. But now all of a sudden she said, now I know that you are truly a prophet of God. The word of God then dwells with you. In other words, that now I know this Israel's God. He is no longer just God to me. Even though I have received what used to be my God, but now this God is my God. If you want to experience this miracle, God has to become your God. But how did the woman come into this place, you ask? The woman came into this place when her only son, her only son came back to life. For you to receive the decisive knowledge, it is not that you have to sacrifice your only son. Why? Because God's only son was sacrificed for you. God's only son went and he died and he came back to life again. And if you will put your trust in Jesus, can I tell you, absolutely guaranteed, you will know this decisive knowledge of him. And if you know this decisive knowledge of him, it can be deepened in you. But you see, let me tell you one more thing. Whilst the woman's son came back to life, he eventually died again. But when it comes to God's son, when he came to life, he never died again. The woman's son came back to life. But Jesus' son, a God's son, went forth into life. And if you believe in him, one day he has said, you too will never die again. But see, you may have hopes in God. You may have so many things that you expect in God for. But there is a sure banker hope that will never be taken away. No matter your current situation, God has said you will live again. Permit me to paraphrase Martin Luther King Jr. And change this phrase. It's listen to this. Though the arc of the fulfillment of all our desires may be long, it always bends towards life. Life eternal in Jesus Christ. So you think you know God, Abby? Oh, if you have this decisive knowledge of God in Jesus, then no matter how much your knowledge currently is being disrupted, He will deepen His knowledge in you. He will deliver you from your troubles. And on that day, you too will live again. Let us rise up and pray. Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.